Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Not really about just coming up with the answer, whatever that might be. We're actually about working with leaders, right? So it's that's really like we're clients, right? Those are the people. Ultimately, businesses are people, and so we've seen so many consultant firms, right? Like you come up with a great strategy, sits on the shelf, right? Like that's the idea. What's up, guys? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazny. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine is about two things. Number one, people are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world. Doing both of these despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews of world-class speakers and business leaders showcasing their origin story. What made them tick? What got them to where they are now? So it can help you step into your greatness within your own life, business, and career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years in entrepreneurship as a CEO to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation and messages, and I'm stoked to have you guys here. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Woo! Finale. (laughs) Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazny. Wow, I'm like out of breath. <laughs> and we have an amazing guest for you today. The one, the only, Michelle, I, I'm, I've never asked you how to pronounce your last name, so I'm just going to say the one, Michelle, I'm going to butcher, butcher your last name to Darius, just put up on my last name. The one, the only, Michelle Lore de Mola. Is that right? That sounds good. Boom! <laughs> Did I get it right? Seriously? It's Loret de Mola, but I also oh, wrong, wrong country. <laughs> All right, awesome. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. Michelle is the director of strategy, and she's the head of talent at Growth and Growth at Jump, which is this amazing, amazing firm in Silicon Valley. And she's a conscious capitalist. That's actually how we met was through the Integral Leadership Program at Stegen. And I did not know this about you, but you are a professionally trained trained chef. That's that right. So yeah. cool. And, and most importantly, out of all these things, she's an amazing human being. So welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So chef, no way. Like, uh, like who knew? I wish I had known. I was like, hey, make me some food. Like, uh, I, 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 like what, tell us about that. You know, talking about following your passions. I think that was a moment since high school. I worked in a couple of kitchens. I was really excited, very passionate about food. And there was a moment in my life where I just wanted to explore that. You know, I was initially I thought I was going to go to college. I was going to go to culinary school. 
I ended up having a huge fight with my dad who was like, you should go to college. <laughs> and so I ended up going to college, but that's still like that little bug was there, right? That I really, really wanted to do this. And so I ended up going to culinary school after I did uh, corporate strategy at Visa for a bit and thought that was my passion, thought I was going to go into restaurants. I ended up going to restaurant management in Napa and it was an amazing experience. I learned so much through it, but pretty quickly I was like, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> um, and so it was, I'm really glad I did it, right? Because if not, I would think I'd still be like, oh, could that have been my path? Could that have been my path? But you know, it was a moment in time and something that I was able to explore and I'm really grateful for it. But you know, that's kind of how I ended up in Jump actually, it was, was uh, taking some time off of that and trying to think about what did I really want. So, so can I just ask you, like you go to culinary school, was there like a certain type of food you were passionate about making or is there a certain like genre of food that you're like, that's my style. Like don't, don't mess with me there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that I really like, uh, sort of traditional, like French and Italian cooking. I think that's definitely where I feel most comfortable with. I do like cooking Peruvian food where my family's from. So that's a lot of fun too. I'm exploring that, but really like the thing I loved about culinary school is sort of the science and the basics of it. I've always been someone who really under, likes to understand why something yeah. is, this. and the thing culinary school gave me was, you know, what's the Meyer reaction with meat and like, how do you get mommy flavors and what are the five basic flavors and things like that, that really allow me to explore a lot when I'm in the kitchen. And that's my favorite place to be is like on a Saturday cooking and just like, I'll look at one ingredient and I'll be like, okay, like what, you know, what do I do with this? And just letting that creativity flow is just, it's really awesome. That's, that's my place. I'm so, I'm so pumped to ask you my last question today. And I'm not, I'm, I, this, that's for all you people that just heard that, like you're going to stick around now because I'm going to ask her an amazing question about food. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like a food, like maniac. Like I love, I, I, and, I, and especially like you live in the Bay area and I moved from the Bay area. Like San Francisco is such a, like, it's a culinary jewel. It's not like New York where you can have, where it's like ridiculous number of options, right. Or you go to London or these places where it's like you have a hundred of everything. <laughs> yeah. San Francisco is a little bit more like you don't have as many options. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of options depending on the food, but it's like uh, so good when you find the right thing in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, my hot take with San Francisco is always, I don't love the restaurant scene. I'm always controversial on that. We can talk, oh, we can dig in. Oh. But I do agree that like, there's no other place to be a cook in than the Bay Area just because the produce is fantastic. Like the varieties, the options, the things that you can have and cook with is just, I mean, it, it's outstanding. Oh man, I think we might have to have a bare knuckle brawl about this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can take a poll or something. So, yeah, my favorite restaurant on the whole earth is in San Francisco. It's called Pisetta to Eleven. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll have to go. Yeah, I'm going to give you my list and then okay. we're gonna, I'm going to interview after my list and we'll yeah. see if it's fulfilled. This is a deep conversation because I can go in as to why. It's not just about food, right? We're going out going out to eat has so many different components to it. So that's a little true, bit. true, true. Yeah. Well, and look, and, I, and my formative years in food were from 2001 to 2000, you know, probably 17, which is when I lived in the Bay Area. That's, that's a very formative time to learn food, right? You're in your 20s <laughs> and 30s. And, and <laughs> yeah, right. And my wife's family is actually comes from a, a restaurant background. Oh, so, okay. so are, are you familiar with the Chez Panisse restaurant? Yes, of course. Yeah. So my wife's family is very involved in that restaurant. So that was my, that was actually my introduction was through that, through that scene. Not a bad introduction. That's definitely a good one. The classic California cuisine right there. Yeah. Like, like that's setting the bar kind of high when like your, your introduction of food is like one level removed from, from Chez so I'll leave that for the end of the show. But yeah, so t walk us through this. How did you go from 
I mean, clearly you have this passion, you want you have the bug, you itched it, and you're like, eh, I don't like it. What was it that was, was like, you're like, this isn't for me? Yeah, I think, I mean, ultimately it was the not recognizing myself something that like I, I did like a little bit more of the strategy and the future thinking. And so I love the creativity that comes with the kitchen. Um, but I was a little bit more and sort of ended up in front of house sort of management of restaurants and realizing it was a little too sort of day-to-day operations for me, right? And you're stuck in sort of that day-to-day thing that's going on. And I realized I wanted to look at something that was a little bit more like the business or the strategy of it a little bit bigger and just recognizing and, you know, thinking a little more longer term. And I think that's one of those moments where I was like, oh, okay, this isn't really, you know, it started to feel a little repetitive for me uh, on a daily basis. And so I was like, okay, so that's not really it. And so I took some time off after that where um, probably one of the hardest times in my life, because it's, you know, early twenties. And I was sort of like, you know, really thought I had found something and, you know, this tells you a lot about my personality, but I felt, you know, this kind of, found the thing I'd already planned 10, 15 years out. Right. Like that was <laughs> like all that. And so then like, you know, a year later, I'm like, Oh, okay. So now what, you know, what do I do? I thought I felt I put all my eggs in the basket. And so that was, you know, a really, really hard time, but I was really lucky to find actually I ended up working with a coach to help me figure out what is it that I really liked. Right. And sort of first time I was removing like labels from it, right. Whether I wanted to be a strategist or do this, I would, you know, remove those labels and just talk about what kind of work I wanted to do, you know, who I was, what kind of environment I wanted to work in, which I think was something I hadn't really thought of. It seems funny now, like since I work on building culture in my company, like that I hadn't really thought about what kind of culture, what kind of people I wanted to work with. And, but at that time I was able to explore that. Um, and you know, that led me, I still, remember it so clearly I was sort of like what is like somehow googling had found this sort of design strategy world and design thinking which to me I mean maybe like Silicon Valley knew it very well or but for me I did not at all so I didn't even know the term and so just like googling and I ended up finding through some Quora posts like top firms that work in that (laughs) and I just started looking and jump just had this the biggest thing that caught my eye was sort of jump's philosophy around business and the idea that you could do like do well and do good as a business. And that, you know, was something that really resonated with me in a time that I thought I was like, oh, does this even exist? Right. Does anyone think this way? And so just finding a firm that, that that's really what caught my eye. Uh, and then I started thinking it there. So when you left the cooking world, like you're, you did this thing that you dreamed of, did you, had you thought about like that since you were like young, you're like, I'm gonna be a chef when I grow up? Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. I loved, I always loved restaurants, I think more than anything. Like I wasn't sure that I necessarily wanted to be in the kitchen the whole time, but I just loved, I mean, I would, I was the kid who was like, what would I do on a Saturday? was like watch cooking shows in the morning and then go to the grocery store. And, but like, it was always inspiration for me. It was never to copy. It would be like, oh, okay. And then I'd go and buy one ingredient or something and just invent, you know, and just spend like Saturday cooking. So that was something that I just felt you know, like it was the only time for someone who's a planner like I am and very sort of, I would say low grade neurotic. Um, you know, this is the only time in the kitchen where I get to feel like I'm not I, I'm really going with the flow. It's it's a true like meditation in that way. That's so interesting. I was talking about this yesterday on a show that that I so I've been doing somatic experience therapy. And yeah. my, my therapist was like, you know, we had this whole like interaction about me not being like how I'm not spontaneous. Mm. Right. And what you just, you just triggered this thought in my mind that, because I love, I mean, I love cooking and that I'm super creative and spontaneous and I don't, to your point, go with the flow. And it's like, it's really, 
cathartic thing that you create something with love and then you give it to someone and then you got to watch them and like have that moment where they enjoy it. Oh, and yes. like that, when I think of, and I, I'm obsessed with pizza, by the way, like I was, I don't know if, did you know that about me that I have like, no, I did not know you're obsessed with pizza. That's good obsession. Like, <laughs> like, like crazy obsessed. Like, we're talking here like every night of the week. <laughs> well, it's not about the eat. Like, no, I mean, yeah, yeah. I can eat pizza every day of my life. Like I would, <laughs> I would never get sick of it, ever, but um, it has to be good pizza. Like I won't eat bad pizza, but no, like I like making pizza. I make pizza for my family homemade every Friday and, yes. and I experiment with it. And, and it's, and I, now I'm messing with them uh, like in a, what's it called? What's a, a black pan, like a pan pizza, essentially. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 The cast iron pan. Yeah. So I do yeah. like cast iron pizzas. Now I have a pizza oven. Nice. Um, I don't, the, the, what I don't like about pizza ovens, is it's really hard to control the temperature and the one that I have. So it's one of those boonie ones. I don't know if you've seen it online. Yeah. They're like these outdoor, like wood burning ovens that you can. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that like I shaped sort of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of like cool shape, but they're made all out of metal, so they don't trap the heat that well. Yeah. And so the temperature moves around a lot, and when you're making a pizza, so that ruins all your pizza basically. And I'm like too like impatient to like learn how to mess with the fire, so I'm like, ah, oh, I just need something that's consistent. That's like where like the strategic, like when you're talking, I was like, oh my god, I have so much in common with you. Like my strategic brain's like, I don't like this. I need control. Yeah, exactly. But I love that. I mean, that's part of what the kitchen teaches you, right? It's like, you don't always, it's really about like reacting to the elements that you have and just watching it. I mean, that's something like biggest, my dad wants to always cook with me. I'm I'm at home right now and my parents and um, helping them out a bit. And so he's like following me in the kitchen as I'm cooking and he's like, well, why do you do this? And he's extremely impatient. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just looking at it. Right. And what it tells me, right? Like, where is it? Where's the temperature? What's going on? Tasting it and reacting to that. And that drives me. That's, that's funny there, there's this chef she had a restaurant and it's killing me i'm forgetting it it was in it was in the uh castro in san francisco and it was like it was an amazing restaurant uh, i'm killing me they have a restaurant called octavia octavio now yeah. you know what i'm talking about yeah so the woman that started that restaurant had a restaurant in the castro that i'm dying i, I wish i remembered it but anyway they interviewed her for um it was like southwest magazine it was like top restaurants in each city and that was one of the um ones they interviewed and she said, like, you can tell how good a chef is by how well they make an ache, right? Yes. And, and so I laughed when I read it because I, like, that's, like, one of my specialties is making eggs. And, like, <laughs> like, and I, when I was in college, I went, I, I went to UC Davis. I joined a fraternity. And so we had, to, like, people would make, like, when you're a, do you know anything about fraternities or sororities? Uh, yes, I was in a sorority in college. All right, so then, you, then you'll understand. So in fraternities, they haze the hell out of you. Like, so like you have to pledge and when you pledge you're basically the slaves for the active member yeah. and so one of the things you have to do is like clean the house and you're going into errands for them but you have to make them food all the time and i was like they always wanted me to make them food and then when i was an active i had people make me food and they would make the worst eggs i, I was like i was like did their parents teach my mom by the way makes amazing scrambled eggs like like they melt in your mouth good so Anyway, I found that interesting that that's, that's a way to test someone's culinary skills is the making of an egg, but it makes sense. It's quick, easy to screw it up. There's a lot to it around texture. And, yeah, doom and temperature are very important. Yeah, I, that was my first start in the kitchen. I would think I was like eight years old. And I think that was, I mean, it was really born out of necessity. My parents, neither one cooks. My mom hates the kitchen. If she could remodel a house without a kitchen, she would. Like, she was like, this is useless. I don't want a kitchen. Oh, and so, so you can imagine what I grew up eating where I was like, here's cereal for, for breakfast. 
And so I was like really desperate for something else. I was like, I don't know. And there was a woman who would come and help my mom with like cooking because she didn't like doing it. So she would come to the house, Peruvian woman. Um, and I remember asking her when I was eight, like really pronounceable in my Spanish. I was just like, can you like, can you teach me how to make scrambled eggs? Because I really wanted to switch it up. And so that's like, that was the first dish I learned how to make was really good scrambled eggs. Oh, it's so fun. You know, I learned to cook the same for the same reason you did. So <laughs> My parents like both worked and I love food. And so I was like eight. And when on Saturdays, my parents would sleep in and it would be like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, I don't want to, you know, I'm watching cartoons all, all morning. You know, this is back when you can only watch cartoons. <laughs> and I was like, and I, me and my brother and sister, and I'm a twin. And so, and my brother, he's a better cook now, but he was not a good cook even as an adult. And my little sister was like three. And so I was like, you know, I'm tired of cereal. I don't want cereal anymore. And I'm like, I'm going to make bacon and eggs and yeah. I'm make bacon <laughs> and pancakes, right? I went big. I was like nine and I'm like, I'm going big. So I get bisquick. I make the whole batter. <laughs> I then, <laughs> I kid you not, I got like mozzola oil, like an entire gallon of it. <laughs> so I'm like third grade and I pour like an inch of mozzola oil into the pan and turn it on high. I proceed to make deep fried pancakes and burn my face. <laughs> like, Flying with like grease is flying. <laughs> and so it wasn't very good, but I did learn the lesson, which around temperature and around, I was like, I'm 10. I'm like, <laughs> right. And it was totally like this experiment. I was like, all right, less oil, watch the temperature. And then maybe by the second or third weekend, I'm literally making my own pancake. So yeah. it's funny how kids I think learn. You gotta try it, right? And I think that's been a theme in my life as I, and as I help other people at Jump too, it's a lot of like, I, I do. I think that's what the kitchen taught me, right? Like that's why I'm still grateful for the experience. It's ultimately like, I mean, I've cut few of my fingers, like pieces off. I have burns. I have burns all over my hands, like things, things like that. And you just, but you, there have all been learnings. They've all been something that, like, I've tried. I've you know figured it out. But from the first time, I remember one, and I was like six in working in a kitchen and um, great restaurant here in Miami that's since closed, but we were doing, it was my first dinner. I was in pastry and it was my first dinner where I had to do like an 80% dinner that was coming in. So we had to get out like everything really, really quickly. And I was chopping strawberries and I just like, like off, off a nice little slice. But like the chef next to me just goes like, clean it up, wrap it up, keep going. Like it was, it was just a key, you know, and you're like, well, all right, keep going. And you just, but you learn, I think like the themes of mastery and the idea that like, you, no one is born at this like rate and it's a lot of practice, like new skills or things like that is a lot, a lot of practice. Um, and I'll burned in the way, but I'll, I'll worth it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Such an analogy for life. We have a couple of questions. So um, yeah. what is your strategy for driving change and helping people define their goals? Yeah. I think those are actually like maybe two different questions for me, right? I think driving change, a lot of it is about helping, I think two things. One is helping define a vision for folks, what could be possible. And it's not a single vision. It doesn't have to be like you define it and people follow. But I think it often like change is possible when, when they can see the alternatives, right? When you can see different options, when you can see what the future could look like. And so I think being able to inspire that in folks, um, is, is a big piece of that. Personally, for me, like the role that I find I play really well, and actually with uh, the ILP helped me kind of define my own personal purpose. A big thing that I sort of was able to discover was my role as a challenger um, and that I play that quite well. And one of the places where I do that really well is in, um, in challenging assumptions, right? So helping people, I think maybe that goes to the second part of the question is like, when people come to me and talk to me about like what they think is possible, what they're struggling with, a lot of it is about asking questions, right? And does that have to be true? And like a big alarm bell for me is when people will go like, you know, it's just people will always be this way or, you know, it's always been the, this, just the always or those things are always like triggers for me where I'm like, okay, hold on. You know, like yeah. at 
at one point we have always invented something, right? That everything that we live on today has been invented by someone, right? There are very few laws of nature that are actually laws of nature. And, and you know, I have hopes <laughs> of what's possible. And so I think just being able to play that, that role of challenging someone, challenging their assumptions, challenging what we think is possible in the future is often the, just a, it's really about sparking that for someone, right? And as soon as I find that as soon as you do that, it's about letting them define what that future is. I love that. That's so awesome. And you just like hit the nail on the head because if you look at even the, the history of the economy that we're in, we're, you know, it's the, like, I heard someone told me Monday, they said, and I can't remember the guy's name, it's Hearst, I think said it, is that we are moving into now what, what they're calling the purpose-driven economy, right? And, and which I know you and I probably love. And I've been saying that, like, this is like this, the soapbox that I'm on right now is that I said, look, we just hit a new, we're in a new cycle and we're, we're still going down in my, it hasn't turned yet um, because of COVID and because of just these macroeconomic things that are happening. And what I'm telling people, and this is just a push on my book, which is I said, look, the future leaders, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, given the firm you look work for. And, and, and let me finish the thought, and then I want to say this thing to you, because I don't think everyone knows what Jump is, and I want you to tell them what Jump is and what you guys are doing, but in the context of what I'm about to say. Ready? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, this is my vision of the future. So in the book, I said, one of the things I'm saying is that the future of this upcoming economy, the future leaders of this coming business cycle, that are going to kick everyone's ass are going to be mission, vision, and values-based organizations. They are going to crush every single in every category, and I firmly believe it. And so, part of the, one of my goals, my BHAG, my big hairy audacious goal of the book, is to create one million core value-driven organizations because I'm like, those are going to be the leaders. Like, like hands yeah. down, I know it. It's going to happen. And this puts to the comment I just said, where if we're moving into the purpose-driven economy, I think that's the reason why. So, my question to you is. Number one, how do you guys view a comment like that at Jump? What do you guys do at Jump and how do you view a comment like that that I just made? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, Jump, you know, we always say that, like, yes, we do strategy work. Um, and it's very basic as we do strategy and innovation work for, for different types of customers or clients. So our clients uh, range from, you know, I've worked with anyone from media to uh, manufacturing. So we're not very industry specific in that sense, right? But Although that's what we do on paper, ultimately our purpose, we're a company and our purpose is to transform lives through learning and growth, right? And we do that through the work, right? We say the best way to do that to help people is like then prove it, right? We can go and we can talk to people about, you know, the importance of having a learner mindset, the importance of investing in your own growth and how that can ultimately transform lives, right? All of that. But ultimately when we do it through the work, that's the way that we really see. And so I think that gets to what you're talking about where not really about just coming up with the answer, whatever that might be. We're actually about working with leaders, right? So it's, that's really like, we're clients, right? Those are the people, ultimately businesses are people. And so we've seen so many consultant firms, right? Like you come up with a great strategy, it sits on the shelf, right? Like that's the idea. And so it's not really about that. It's about the learning through that process. So we partner very much with our clients, right? Where we want to make sure um, that's the work that I do as a, as a project lead is actually help through that. And we partner with them very closely because it's about them coming to those things with us, right? Learning through this ambiguity, learning through the change, coming through that, creating something that they feel really, really awesome about. And then ultimately that leading to change. Sometimes that's been defining purpose and values for companies. So 
that too in a few projects. And sometimes it's just through strategy. Um, like most recently, I did a sustainability project. And how do we show that, that through sustainability, they can do something that's, you know, both good for their business, but also great for the world, right? And so really helping our clients find that like and that they can get and become those conscious capitalist businesses is a, a big goal of ours. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Darius here. And by now you might know that I'm passionate about a few things. Pizza, pink unicorns, core values, and down dirty, interesting conversation with some amazing people. However, the biggest one that I've spent most of my career on is entrepreneurship and scale. You see, look, my first few years in business, I spent like probably a good five years of my life getting my freaking teeth kicked. I mean, really getting crushed. And I learned a lot during that time period. So I spent the greater part of the last couple of years helping entrepreneurs scale their businesses in a meaningful way without going through the same growing pains that I did. And what I realized is that CEOs and business leaders don't know if they can scale and thus they do the right thing at the wrong times. This causes them to lose clarity, lose momentum, alignment, and the bottom line is you lose money. And look, you don't have to do that. It's why I created what I call the scalability assessment. And you can access it 100% for free. That's right, guys. There are perks to listening to The Greatness Machine. All you have to do is go to DariusScale.com. That's D-A-R-I-U-S scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And there, you can check to see if your business is set up to scale properly. It's going to give you a scalability score at the end. And it's also going to give you some clarity on what you can do next. Once again, guys, that's www.itsdariusscale.com. Once again, guys, it's DariusScale.com. And now back to the show. You guys are working with like some really impressive companies who are change makers, essentially, which is this, the premise of the show is the greatness machine is about working with change makers. So what do you see as it, what differentiates in your mind the companies that when you go in or the organizations you go into or the people you're working with, what is it when you're like, wow, like this is an amazing group versus this is a group that's, you know, more status quo or less impressive. What, what, what are the things that you notice? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I mean, personally, I believe that everyone's capable of this, right? So it's really about like at what length in their journey they're in. Right. And a lot of the people that I think we partner best with is who equally, whether they call it that or not, or recognize it or not, have that learner mindset really come into it. Um, the types of problems that we focus on, right, are exactly what we talked about, sort of the problems that we're facing right now, right, where um, the paradigms have shifted, right? Things have changed. Can't really look at past as in that case, right? It's not about optimization or efficiency. Um, it's about what's next, right? And as we look, so really it's those two things, right? It's learning through that and, and that ability to want to learn through that, a learner mindset wanting to explore with us um, through that. And ultimately, like that, you know, we've been using a lot the the idea of just being future focused, right? And what that looks like. And so when when we find those leaders, I think it's a nice little marriage between Jump and our clients. So like speaking of future focus, do you guys have any certain position on what you think the future is or how far do you guys lean into the future when you guys are thinking yeah. future focus? Well, I guess that's exactly in your point of view is you don't really define the future, right? It's um, it's one of those things. Like, I think it would be hard for us to say that the future is going to look one way. I mean, you can, I think as entrepreneurs and things like that, having a strong vision, I think you can shape the future and make it what you want. I think there's definitely that position for a lot of folks. But I think in, in sort of traditional, I think, you know, you never know. It's part of that. It's like, let me not, let me not put that lens on it of thinking there's only one future available. Let me think about the multiple ways that this can go by understanding different variables, 
different things and understand what the new paradigms of the future might be, right? And what that, how that informs our strategy and our decisions from very, from what we can start doing today, what actions we can take. Got it. So we have another question. It says, what's the antidote for ambiguity? That's an ambiguous question. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think exploration, right? True, I think that's it, right? It's like if you um, are facing something that's true ambiguity, you can't, you have to start with what are my own assumptions about what the future might be or what the answer might be. Remove those, right? And then go into it with a true, true learning and exploration, right? That means I do think it's even more powerful when you're not doing it by yourself. I think that can really help is, um, you know, we're very collaborative in that sense. And when we talk about collaboration, we talk about co-creation. Um, that's a big part of what I focus on when, I, when I'm thinking about the culture of Jump is about how do we enable co-creation. As I mentioned before, it's largely co-creation with our clients as well. It's making sure that we're bringing in, or whether it's a community, oftentimes when we've done service days or things like that, it's bringing in more people. I think you get just that awesome different brains thinking, right? Um, and really just learning your way through it. So I think learning, you know, doing, learning, um, and coming away with it, continuing to evolve. And that's how you ambiguity. Speaking of that, like what just kind of rang true, true for me, at least when I heard you say that, is this whole ideology and movement around diversity inclusion that we're seeing right now. And so how are you guys, I mean, as strategists, obviously you may have a position internally, but externally, how are you as a, like approaching that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. There was something... I got to say, it's probably, it's really hard, I think, to think about it both internally and externally, particularly during this time. There's a lot of different ways that, you know, we have, we have people who have like a definition for it, right? Um, externally in the world. And I think, honestly, it is about that. It's like learning our way through it, because I don't think the things that we've done in the past have necessarily been successful, um, as we can see today, right? And so how do we navigate that? I think oftentimes, for that, what I thought about is like if you have systemic racism or systemic sexism or you know whatever the systemic social injustices that we have, the antidote in that sense, right, is I think widespread empathy, right. And when we think about that, is creating that empathy in organizations. So we often take a sort of social lens to the work that we're doing, right? really bringing the voice of the customer or the voice of the, the culture or the voice of whatever community we're with into informing that strategy. But not just informing the answer, but actually taking people through those experiences that allow them to truly connect with people, not just like words on a wall or statistics or things like that. But how do you really create that as an organization, um, not just in a single person, but as, again, a system, right? And I think you can't have, a, you know, with people to use the term customer centricity, but I think you can have that um, widespread in an organization and that can create the, the change that we, that we want to see. So you just said, uh, and words on a wall, which is, I think that's like a, a mistake that I find that most people tend to fall into, which is they have these aspirational views of how they're going to approach their business. And, and then they do the work, the words on the wall work, which is, you know, it could be values, mission, vision, you know, some framework around what they're trying to become and how they're trying to, you know, interact with the world. And then there's business as usual, right? And so what I, at least in my experience, I believe that that's a design issue. And that's that, and that's essentially. I wrote my book. My book's a design book, which I don't even know if you know that, but um, it's a design book around how do you design these assets, these these quote unquote you know cultural assets, to have high utility value, so that you can operationalize them for business as usual. So, when you think of how you guys approach maybe values or 
or if you, when you're coming at a strategic project, is there a way that you're looking at boards on a wall when you're coming into an organization and, and then applying a strategic framework to actually leverage words on a wall and make it where it's not words on the wall or where you're trying to affect transformational change, not just some PMO project that you're coming in to do? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to send you something afterwards. But as we think about um, sort of purpose-driven companies and creating that, you know, what we think about, we do this externally as well, but I can talk about it within Jump in particular. A big thing is I like to think about culture as something that, you know, you cannot think about it as set it and forget it, right? It's like, once I've defined it, you know, they're, right? Like, we're good, done. Everyone got it, move on, right? Um, it's it's got to be something that you have to build the daily, like, rituals and habits that sustain that culture and continue to, like, bring bring us back to that center, right? Um, I think about it a lot as, like, if you have a personal meditation practice, right? It's literally called a practice, right? You can't, it's like, going, I think we, we use that analogy in ILP too, right? Where it's like, you go to the gym, you build those muscles, you can't just be like, and now my muscles will stay forever, right? yeah. You got to keep going to the gym. And so what is that equivalent for you and defining that? Um, so that's like in practice piece, right? But it is true that defining it is super important. What is that culture? And so for us, um, we have our set of core values for our company, but they're sort of, um, I think in some ways, like people get shocked by this, where it's it's strictly defined, right? Like our values have meaning behind them, are super super intentional. We draw out what good looks like, right? And we bring people into the company that way. So we spend a whole week on onboarding just on values. So a whole week, I don't know another company that does this necessarily, where they spend a whole week where you do nothing else except, I mean, there is some paperwork involved, but you do basically nothing else except spend a week really really understanding what those values are. And to like dive into that a little bit, when we when I think about this, we do this with clients often as well, is really like, what does learning look like? And I think we all need to understand how people really learn, right? Um, and it is not like, here, read this, right? And do you get it? Truly, I think, have transformation or have learning through um, experiences, right? So that little moment of that experience, right? That little moment of shift that was those. So we design into a week long for like, for curiosity, uh, which is one of our values. Uh, I, uh, every onboarding, I lead people through a walking meditation through San Mateo where we're located. You know, now is a little difficult, but in the time where we could do it, we would do these walks in a walking meditation. And the whole idea was just to experience this, like 90 minutes, just to experience what wonder feels like, right? To truly just take in the world because curiosity for us isn't just, you know, I searched something in Google. Curiosity is defined as hungry to know more about everything. Right. So what, it, what does that start with? You got to wonder, right. You got to wonder what that is. And so giving people that little moment, that experience that says, Oh, okay. Like wake some, wake something up in their brain. And that's, that's, I think that learning piece that allows that to change. And then you build on that as we talked about, right. You build on that with the rituals and habits um, that continue to reinforce what you mean. That's so funny. You just like, I just connected a dot while you were talking because I think that number one, I mean, even when I built, I, chapter six of my book is a, is a one day onboarding for core values, which that's them. Even I was like, that's, that's pretty, it used to be two days and I made it a one, but <laughs> a whole week, that's damn, that's like marathon style. But, but you know, one of the things you're doing that I hadn't even thought of, which is an amazing investment to make in a team is, you know, in somatic experience work, one of the things that somatic practitioners say is that the body never forgets, right? Mm-hmm that we learn in multiple ways, right? We have five senses. So what you're doing there is you're, you're opening their body to the experience of all the senses to learn something. And that's really impressive. Like I hadn't ever 
put that together. You just talk, I, I love I love doing this show. I learn new stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, that's so smart. That's so smart. So to your point, most a lot of these like less enlightened businesses, even enlightened businesses for that matter, you show up, they give you your you know, HR handbook that literally negative one person's ever read. <laughs> yes, but you still have to sign anyway. <laughs> you have to sign. It's like a classic like 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 mortgage process. People sign paperwork they don't read. Yeah, well, that's not how people learn to your point. And if we want them to embrace what I, in my opinion, is the most valuable asset you have in your company, which is the values, because that, that's really defines the behavior, then which defines the outcome, then you have to invest in that. And you guys are so smart to do this tactile approach because everyone learns differently. Some people might learn by writing. Some people might, I mean, I love, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pen and paper guy. I have 50 of these notebooks. I write in them all the time. And so when people learn by seeing and hearing and smelling and touching. And, you know, these are different ways people learn. You want them to learn it. Like that's so smart. Like kudos to you for that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's the hardest thing that is a part of this environment. Just like a side note is this is the hardest thing we're finding with this environment is like as much, as much as remote allows us to do many, many things that has been awesome. And a lot of these tools, these tools don't really exist to for actual learning. Right. Um, because they don't invite that movement, the kinds of things that, um, like you just said, it's not, it's, I, we believe that our brains are not enough evolved enough, right? Uh, for some of these technologies, we still learn a lot by writing, right? Like it's a different movement um, in what you do. And so we try to understand these things, but I also understand where companies are coming from or even like our own people, right? Like our, you know, hey, we don't have time for this. We have this project. We have, it's really hard to quantify the value added of doing this. But ultimately, I think it goes back to the why, right? Why does this matter? And I think you said it, right? It's like, it's ultimately the values lead to behaviors. And you could regulate here's all you want and try to run your business that way. Right. It's like, this is the perfect way to do it. This is the, but to, you know, a previous question, I'm like, how do you navigate ambiguity? I don't really know what, I can't regulate behavior on something that I don't really know what it's going to be. Right. I can only invite people to act the best that they can be, which is human beings who make choices every day and make thousands of decisions every day and to really help, help them be their best selves and come at it um, and take those, like take the best approach that they can at any given moment. And so that's what you want to unleash in your organization. And that's what values can often help do that and making that investment. Hard to quantify, but I think the, the value is there. We've seen it be there. So I actually came up with a way to quantify it. You want to hear it? Go for it. Chapter eight of my book. So okay. I'm going to plug my book. This book, chapter eight, tells you how to quantify it. Because I, for the same reason you just said it, it's ambiguous to most people. So how do you my belief is you have to, and it's not my belief, Jim Collins and Bern Harness say you got to discover your core values to your organization, right? So the discovery process, I believe, is a well, well-worn well path. There's no nothing new there. People know that they need to discover it, be authentic, create, mm-hmm. right? My belief is, and it sounds like you guys have done a good job with this, is you need to design them for use. They need to be designed for high utility value, and there's some science around that. You look at like Miller's Law and the science of memory, the science of narrative. There's not well-worn paths, but there's some good science around how people learn through narrative and through memory, right? So I think you need to have a good design process for that. 
And then you need to immerse them in it, which you guys have clearly done an amazing job of. And you do a five-day immersion for them to like learn. And then it, you need to implement consistently so that they're going to the gym, you know, not once in yeah. the, the chain, right? So those are five four of the five pillars. The fifth is measurement for ROI, right? And so my this is this is at least how I, I take it. I believe if you do the first four and you do them effectively, you will increase engagement in your organization to the highest levels that you that are measurable. And there are good engagement measurement tools out there, like Gallup's Q12, or you could do Bain's NPS, and there's a couple other um, tools. Those are the two I like in particular. And so what I do with those is I measure those in organizations. I baseline them, and then I measure them every 12 weeks. And then I take whatever measurement I use for productivity, and I triangulate it against those measurements. So let's say you have an OKR or a KPI that you're using to measure some level of activity in your business. I actually looked and see if my engagement levels change, are those changing? And what I found is it's almost one for one. If I have an engagement drop by 5%, I usually see a KPI drop by 5%. Is that across the board regardless of KPIs? Like what kinds of KPIs you have? Well, this was, a, you know, we're talking about my previous organization, which was, you know, almost a thousand person organization at one point and like nine business channels. So there was different for every group. What I would okay. do, but, but I did the same thing. I yeah. measured, I didn't just do NPS or Q12 for the organization as a whole, I sliced and diced it by what I was measuring on the KPI side. So let's say for instance, this is a mortgage servicing company and it was a mortgage origination company and it was an insurance company. There's always different businesses. So let's say I'm looking at, I don't know, let's use, I'll use the example of underwriters. Our underwriters are expected to produce X number of underwrites per day. And I have two sets of underwriters. I have X internal, which are people in-house, and then I have actual people that are working remote. I would measure both separately. Or I would have an office in Phoenix and an office in Connecticut, and I would have underwriters in each office. And I would say, okay, I would baseline each one. I'd say, okay, our Q12 scores, uh, I average them, and I'd look at them by question. So each question, I usually wanted to see a 4.2 or above out of five. And if it dropped below 4.2, that was always danger zone. If it dropped below four, there was major issues. But what I would say is I'd go month by month or quarter by quarter and see their variance. Whatever the variance was, was the percentage adjustment. And then I'd pull the KPI data for that quarter and say, what is the percentage adjustment in KPI versus? So. So I think that's, I mean, yes. And so I measure a lot of things in the organization as well. And I think that's awesome. One of the things I found when I've been working with some companies is I think you touched on it, right? Is there's another piece to this equation, which is setting effective KPIs. And oftentimes what I find is that the KPIs are in conflict with what we espouse, we want um, with the, with the culture, right? So, you know, if the culture is set and we talked a little bit about this, right? One is about being future focused. So oftentimes where like our KPIs are a little focused on, on the now um, where you have to ask yourself, you know, are you giving something enough time to sort of work or what is it that you really want? Right. And off, like, I do see that sometimes KPIs like do, you know, let's say collaboration is something that's really important. And you want to organization, you can have KPIs that hinder that because people are going to perform to the incentive that you're giving them. Right. And so if the KPI is not, if their bonus is tied to that KPI and that KPI is creating conflict between two different groups, then you're hindering the capacity to bring collaboration into your organization, right? Yeah. So thinking about that, I think it's really important to be thoughtful about what KPIs we're setting and how we're measuring success in our business. Um, like at Jump in particular, you know, I can measure it from, which of course we do, right? Like revenue is important, right? Things like that are obviously important metrics. But when we think about if you have, like we do for us, running Jump is about, you know, the next 15, 20 years. It's not only about the next year. 
Um, and so when you think, start thinking a little longer term, right, you're measuring, how do I measure our people learning? Right. But that's, a, and, and not just a measurement, but that's the KPI is like that people are, we often separate the outcomes and the performance of folks. Right. And so really looking at that and not just measuring the outcomes, but how do I start setting KPIs around learning and growth? Um, and that that's something that I value or we value in the organization. Right. So, you know, yeah, my brain just exploded when you just said all that, by the way. I realized what I did was I did not lead with the traditional KPIs around productivity. That is a cross-reference for a more holistic KPI because what I care about is engagement and loyalty. Mm-hmm. So two things are happening and the other one's suffering. There's a disconnect, right? So for me, I really care about those two. And when there's an issue there, I would then go cross-reference the productivity KPIs and see what's going on because 99% of the time, it was a managerial or process issue. And it was doing something to decrease engagement and decrease loyalty. And for me, when those were what when we were actualizing in those areas, naturally these other areas were just like drift just, yeah. So for me, it wasn't that to your point, and you could weaponize this if you're like an orange or strategic organization and you're like pounding on people for results. And then you're saying, Oh, well, you know, they're not loyal because they're, you know, we're not paying them enough bonus or whatever, right? So now that's the cart in front of the horse, in my opinion. It's for me, the horse is the loyalty and the engagement. And those need to be really strong. And if they're not, it's a red flag that something else is going awry. And I can start to look at our values work and what's happening there and where are the disconnect. So that was really just more of like a red light would go off. Something was, was something's wrong at this level. I know I need to dig into this area. So anyhow, this is so much fun. Uh, we have ran out of time. So I want to leave yeah. with one question for you. Sure. And I told you in the beginning, I was like, wow, I can't believe you're a trained chef. Like, like I, need you for <laughs> I didn't know that. So my question to you is this, what would be your last meal on earth? What would be my last meal on earth? So, so hard. I just love food so much. Um, I think it would have to be a Peruvian dish called Lomo Saltado. It's very funny. I mean, that goes into the history of Peruvian dishes because um, it definitely has like it's made in a walk if that gives you any idea of, of the history of Peru and immigration there um, but it's made in a walk with soy sauce um, tenderloin it's got rice it's got fries it's got um, <laughs> it's got tomatoes onions um, and a delicious delicious sauce of soy sauce and a little pisco and very very delicious just come with it would you have a drink or dessert with it or just that it pairs very well with a pisco sour that works really well. One of my favorite drinks too. Nice. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so grateful to have you on the show today. This was so much fun. Thank you. Um, where can everyone find you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me as Michelle Retzamola. Pretty, uh, I think I'm the only one. Um, <laughs> Michelle Retzamola and of course, on jumpassociates.com. So grateful to have you here today. Guys, how lucky were we to get to experience this great conversation? And I thank you so much, Michelle. This is so fun. Thank you, Darius. This is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, guys, listen, follow us at The Real Darius M on Facebook for more of these shows, or you can go to my website, www.therealdarius.com, and connect with me on all the different social media. And again, thank you so much, Michelle. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> you are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Guys, The Greatness Machine is all about two things. People who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And we feature these messages and speakers so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life and your own business. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from. 
and leave us a review. We love getting reviews for the show. If the episode made you think of someone who is leveling up in their business and life, print screen it, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to learn from one another. You can also go to our website, www.thegreatnessmachine.com. That's www.thegreatnessmachine.com. And on there, you'll see special tools to help you scale your business faster, show notes for the episode to help you integrate the lessons, and you will also get links that came out during the show. So on there, look, you can also grab a copy of my book, The Core Value Equation, which is a resource for helping CEOs and business leaders establish core values from their teams that don't suck. And mind you, a lot of them suck. Get access to this and more at www.thegreatnessmachine.com. With that said, you guys, look, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We out of here. See you guys next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.